Welcome to the Team Building Podcast, where you'll learn how to build a dominant real estate team in your market. Featuring masterminds with team leaders and mega agents, plus in-depth interviews with operations managers and marketing directors of some of the top teams in the country. You'll learn the latest methods to generate and convert leads, streamline your operations, recruit and train better agents, and raise your profit. And now, here's the latest team building podcast. Hey, this is Jeff Cohn and co-host Renee Mueller with the Team Building Podcast, where we interview top team leaders, broker owners, and thought leaders from across the country. A very special guest today, the author of Blue Fishing, Mr. Steve Sims is with us. We're going to be diving deep into his book, as well as listening to some additional stories that are uncut and raw that no one has ever heard before. Mr. Steve Sims, welcome to the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Ms. Mueller, thank you for helping co-host and making this happen today. Of course, my pleasure. So first, I want to just kind of kick it off, Steve, at talking about where you came from. I think so often individuals make the wrong assumption that to be successful, you have to come from success. And often, if not more often than not, I feel like people that have made something for themselves don't come from a luxurious lifestyle. I'd love for you to share with our listeners that haven't had the opportunity to read the book, Blue Fishing, a little bit more about your past, where you're from, where that accent comes from, and then the type of work you did growing up. Well, I think most entrepreneurs started off aggravated, whether or not they're poor, they're rich, whatever. They just started off aggravated about something. Um, I grew up in East London. Um, I was I left school at the age of 15. And my guidance counselor said, do not bother wasting your time applying for college and then kicked me out. And that was it. So at the age of 15, I left school. My dad was a bricklayer. So straight away, I'm on the building site. And that was it. It was kind of at the age of 15, your life, your life was now you know, defined for you. You were going to be a bricklayer for the rest of your life. But something in me just went, is this it? You know, is this, is this really what it's all about? And I just couldn't, I couldn't handle that. I couldn't settle with that. There was some kind of like, you know, emotion mm -hmm. going on in me. So I left the building site and decided to go out and find my own future, which consisted of me trying hundreds of thousands of jobs that I was inadequate and ill-qualified for. So I got fired a lot. My, my mum just thought, he's going to jail. You know, he, he can't hold a job down. You know, he can't, yeah, yeah, he can't keep a job down. He doesn't know how to do it. But I was just disgruntled, and I wasn't willing to settle. Um, and funny enough, I, I went for so many good jobs that I thought would make me happy and rich. But it was in the dumbest, darkest job that I had that really was the conduit to me being able to, <clears throat> you know, reel off Elton John, Elon Musk, and the Pope as clients. All right, so let's pause there. If anyone is thinking about coming to our team building summit this spring, <laughs> please go out and look at tickets at EliteRealEstateSystems.com. Click on events. We're going to have amazing keynote speakers and thought leaders that will be there to help you take your business to the next level. We'd love to see you guys at the Team Building Summit. And I am trying to work a deal with Steve. I don't know that we'll get him this year, but I would love to have him in the future. He said he's never been to Nebraska and then proceeded to tell us about his son's job, I think, in Alaska. So it is very similar, but it is a different state altogether in the center of the United States. I think you, you could have let that you could have let that go, couldn't you? But no, yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah, I do realize my mistake now, so I apologize. 
not very often am I reading a book. And for those watching on YouTube, I'm holding his book up. An amazing read. Pretty easy. I read it in Mexico last week. We were in Cabo for a week. But there was a part that gave me chills. And I want to share it because everyone thinks on this on this level. Steve, in his book, claims that he was at the top of a condo project that they were working on. I believe you were 19 years old. And you were looking down all the layers of ladders. And part of his job was, you know, in a suburban area where you are wheelbarrowing cement, which I did in high school, these guys had to climb up ladders with cement on their shoulders, I think up to 85 pounds, you said in your book. And he's looking down the ladders, the tiers of ladders, and he sees his cousins, and he sees his uncle. And I don't know if your dad was there, maybe grandpa yep. was watching. And he saw all these generations that came before him. And he thought to himself, what are the generations after me going to be doing? Well, obviously, if I continue as a con person working in concrete, that's what they're going to be. And that was this euphoric moment that kind of compelled you to say, I never want to work another day in this industry the rest of my life. And you never did. Yeah, it was. Uh, um, and it was it was even more vivid than that, because I did. You said that my granddad was looking on. My granddad was actually working as well, along with my uncle and my dad and everything. And I just, I saw my entire family future. I saw, I saw my entire life ahead of me for me being a teenager through my granddad in his eighties. And I went and saw my granddad at like 10 30 in the morning, which was tea break time then in England. And I went in there and of course it's raining outside and we're all cold and damp. And we're in this old caravan with no wheels. And I went up to my granddad and I said, did you ever think you were going to be doing this when you were this old? And of course, it was the kind of question I should have just got a smack in the head. But he didn't even look at me. And I can remember these words. In fact, I can remember the smell. I can remember everything. He didn't look at me. He blew in his thermos tea and he went, son, if you don't quit today, you'll be me tomorrow. Wow. And I was like, whoa. And all of a sudden... <laughs> The entire hut went quiet. You know, I was alone, like in a desert. And I, yeah, I came running out of that caravan and I quit immediately. I literally quit within three minutes of leaving that caravan. And the sad thing is, I don't want to put a downer on this. Uh, my dad had employed me, so I had to quit to my dad. Mm -hmm. And my granddad, and here's the funny thing, we're Irish. My granddad was about seven foot one. Big, big, big fella. I'm six foot and I'm a big chunky lad. My dad, five foot five, kind of missed the whole thing completely. <laughs> and my dad, I was, I was telling, I was looking down towards my dad, who's five inch, you know, five, six inch short of me. I'm looking down to him going, dad, I've got to quit. When my granddad walked behind me and my dad looked up at him, looked at me, and then said, okay, we're light-handed, so you, you can go Friday. I never, ever got the chance to tell my granddad what he had done to me, and he, dad, he died shortly after that. But I'm always wondering, if he had not actually had that conversation with me in that tea hut, would I have quit or would I have put up with it, which would have been even more disastrous? Interesting. He gave you permission. And I want to give all of our audience yes. members permission. All of us get stuck in a rut and we become complacent in that rut. And you talk about that in blue fishing. And I think that that was such a great parallel. And I do 100% agree that people just become complacent because they're fearful of what failure will feel like. And we've been conditioned to feel that way. So before we get into kind of the nuts and bolts of what we can take out of reading book, uh, let's talk now about that job that you did end up doing really, really well that gave you a name across the entire world that led you to writing your book. 
So I was, a, I ended up becoming a doorman of a nightclub in Hong Kong because uh, I had again tried to get a job that I couldn't uh, do. So I was fired again. Um, being born big and ugly, well suited for a nightclub door. Um, and this was my dark hour. This was where I thought, I cannot believe I'd left bricklaying a tradesman's job, a skilled profession. Now my job, my job description was just to thump people and drag them out of a club. I'd gone down, I felt. But I suddenly found that it was a great pedestal to see how people reacted. And I realized everyone I knew was broke. They were broke bikers. And I thought to myself, if I want to be better than this, I need to change the room I'm in. I need to be in a room where people aren't laughing at you because you have an idea. They're challenging you to maybe go further with it. They're, they're questioning you. Because you don't want a cheerleader. You want a challenger. You know, well, why are you doing that? Not someone that's jeering you, but looking for you to, to get qualifications so that you are more focused on what you've got to do. So I had to change my room. And what I did to do that and to get the attention of rich people because, and this is where I'll you know, probably be cut off, I didn't want to be able to have conversations with broke people because I knew what those conversations were like because I was broke. I wanted to have conversations with rich people and ask them, why are you rich and I'm not? And I noticed most rich people, and the richer they got and the more powerful they got and the more visible they got, the less they asked people for favors because they didn't want to pay such a big, big thing coming back. So, and they were scared of trying to get into places. And you can have someone that's the richest guy in St. Petersburg, Russia, but can walk down Hollywood Boulevard and no one knows who he is, even though any one of his credit cards could buy Hollywood Boulevard. Um, so what I did was I decided to start throwing parties for rich people to give them a wonderful night full of equal standard people, but really selfishly, I was just creating my own room. And uh, along with the big parties that I was throwing all over the world, people were going, oh, I'm a great fan of Guns N' Roses, you know. Do you know them? And I'd be like, sure. I didn't. But then I'd end up getting them a drum lesson with Guns N' Roses or getting them to walk the white carpet of Sir Elton John's Oscar party with Elton John or getting them to be on stage with Journey or a guitar lesson by ZZ Top, anything that they would want, but more importantly, could afford, I then became basically the Make-A-Wish Foundation for people with massive checkbooks. But all the time I was doing it, it was a Trojan horse. I just wanted to have a reason and have their engagement to sit in a room and go, hey, why are you a billionaire and I'm not? Because I get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, I go home at 8 o'clock at night, I'm covered in water and crap and shit. And, you know, I'm a bricklayer, so I know what it's like to, to work hard. But how come you're making more money out of it than I? There had to be a missing link. And I spent 20 plus years finding out what those links were. I love it. So you skipped over a couple chapters. And I want to get back to when you were working at nightclub in Hong Kong, because you had a breakthrough from a marketing standpoint at the time that hadn't really started yet. And you became an influencer. And in the book, he talks about how there's this time where this group of guys come up to drink at his bar, and he tells them to go away and he goes go to the bar up the street. And his boss came down and said, Hey, why'd you do that? Super pissed off. Like, why'd you just send the money away? And he said, because if they come in tonight, they're never going to come back. So if they come this Friday, that's the night where it's going to pop off. We'll get a huge crew. So take it from there and then kind of give the teaser as to why you named the book Blue Fishing. Well, I, I realized that we needed to be credible. 
and I was trying to have conversation. And if I was just a thick-headed uh, lug nut on the door that was just letting them in, then I had no conversation. But by turning them away, I had that engagement. I had that commitment. Because funny enough, they were kind of like startled that I was turning them away. So when I turned that rejection into a solution for them by going, hey, no, guys, I'm not trying to be nasty, but because it was very easy for me to be intimidated because doormen are there to be intimidating. But for me to kind of like go, hey, I'm not trying to turn you away and upset your night. I know if you come in here with only like 10 people inside, that's going to upset your night. So I was really looking at becoming the solution for them. And when people are solutions, people come back to them for that solution, even if the solution is go somewhere else. And so that's what really, really worked there. And I noticed that people were constantly trying to find the nightlife of their imagination. Have you ever seen a nightclub? on uh, like a movie, like, you know, Bad Boys or something like that. In the nightclub scene of this Hollywood movie, everyone's perfect, aren't they? Absolutely everyone's beautiful in their club. And then you go to a Vegas nightclub and every single person in there was like 450 pounds with a liter of, <laughs> of alcohol and can I go, it's horrible. There's a disconnect between reality and fantasy. So I went out to create the fantasy. I took over small clubs, invited wealthy people, made sure the pretty people, guys and girls, were in there to give you that element of that fantasy night that you wanted to see. Every now and then I'd bring in a celebrity to kind of like, you know, take photographs or just hang out, or I would switch the venue uh, from, it's not going to be at this club, I've hired a private yacht. The whole night's going to be on a... And it was this constant kind of, where are we going? You know what? I don't know. Steve's doing it, so it's going to be good. And I started doing this. And one of the things that came up, and I've got very primitive, basic principles, because when they're primitive and basic and simply stupid, it's very hard to ignore them. You can stick with something that's easy, can't you? So I noticed as a doorman that if someone came through the door grumpy, I was nine times out of 10 going to have a problem with them inside. But if I controlled my front door, I removed 99% of the problems on the inside. So what I used to do was I used to crack a joke. If the person was good humored enough and humble enough to have a little bit of a joke, then I knew that they would walk through the door smiling. And if people can enter your world smiling, whether it be a nightclub or business, You've got the start of a good relationship. So I used to charge people to come along to my parties, but I used to give them stupid passwords. And I wanted to come up with, how can I ask you to say something so stupid that it's ridiculous? And so we came up with, this is the location. And the passwords were, and there were three. We only used three. To get into this party tonight, you've got to name two of the Teletubbies. So people would walk up to the door and I'd go, tinky winky po, and we'd let them in, okay? It was a silly password. Or finish this uh, uh, rhyme, one fish, two fish, red fish. So people would turn up and go, blue fish. But the one that really got them, and have either of you got kids? Yeah. Yeah, we both do. Then, then you'll get this one. The password for tonight's party is the lion 
out of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. What's his name? Oh, boy. I knew he was going to ask one that we wouldn't get. I'm like, these were horrible parents. Well, here's the funny thing. We would get, and and your faces are perfect because to, to let you off the hook, it's Aslan. Okay? So we would get people come to the door. Now, bear in mind, the people that we were inviting, we would never invite poor people because, again, I knew what it was like to be poor. You can't afford drinks. You're always worried about how much money you got in your pocket. You don't want to talk to someone in case you've got to buy them a drink and then you're screwed. So I only invited rich people, okay? And I knew that we'd have these people come up. I would charge them. It started off at $1,000 a ticket. I went up to $5,000 for a night at one of my parties. And they would come up to the door, very powerful people, employing hundreds of people. And they'd come up to my door and they'd go, oh, the lion. Um, uh, is it lion? And we'd be like, no, it's not lion, you know? And then we're like, but go on in. Because they were so humble and they, they were kind of like in this, I don't know, what they were having a giggle, they were having a joke. And people used to go through complaining, going, why are we doing this? this? I didn't know what it was. And of course, in the 80s and 90s, we, didn't, we weren't outsourcing our intelligence to our smartphone. So it wasn't a case that you could just Google the bloody thing. They were literally in line going, do you know what it is? I don't know. I think it's Brian. Brian the lion? No, don't be stupid. But they would. So, but just by having that kind of atmosphere, it was engaging them. And I had so many people kind of like going on about these passwords and you should drop it. But I didn't realize at the time, but it was really a, a pinnacle thing of my growth. And one of the passwords was Bluefish. And then people used to contact us going, hey, we've got this company and we want to do a product launch. Are you that Bluefish company? And in the early stages, we didn't know what. And we would be like, no, what are you talking about? And they were like, oh, we went to this party and we had to say Bluefish. And we'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that was us. And we ended up becoming what other people wanted us to become. So we never designed our company. We became a response to people's needs and requirements. I love it. And you started talking about after you got through that journey of putting together these amazing parties that you recognized that everyone had a password. No matter yes. who you talk to, there's a word, there's a way to get into their world. So I know you kind of ran through a lot of the really cool things you did. Instead of us asking you just to pull an example out of the hat, what are some of the fun things and included in the book or not that were actually enjoyable for you and it didn't just feel like your mundane, everyday type of challenge? Are there any that kind of stuck with you to this day? Well, have you met me? I don't think I've had a mundane day in my life since I left the building site. You know, I literally went, now the concierge firm kind of slowed up and I moved away from it about three years ago when the book came out because now I, I teach and I coach and as you know, I throw events and stuff. So it's taken me in a new path. So I've gone from spending billionaires' money to give them interesting cocktail stories to shaking up entrepreneurs to make their own cocktail stories. So it's a new challenge at my point in life. But I used to wake up in the morning to this ritual. I used to put the dog out, make my coffee, and then, I'm not kidding you, be excited like a little kid at Christmas to turn on my laptop to see what ridiculous email I had that morning to see where I was going to suddenly be flying off in the world. Um, and I had clients all over the planet they would be in Venice and go, look, you know, I've got a dinner party next Tuesday. I want you to come to it. And I'll be like saying to my wife, I'm going to Venice next Tuesday or, you know, I'm going to Krakow. Or, you know. I was constantly on a plane. And one of the things that I focused on very early on 
was never give a client what they asked for. That's what Amazon does. Now, all of the people in the real estate world today, listen to that, replay it, play it again, write it down, get it tattooed on the inside of your eyelids. Never give a client what they asked for. Otherwise, Amazon, Purple Bricks, and anyone else is going to take your job. Someone asks you a question, you do this. You go, that sounds fantastic. Why is that important? And get to the core of what it is they need. In doing so, I would have someone ask me for one thing, and it would just balloon up. So I've done some really cool things, but I'm going to give you, and there's many that I can't talk about. I had a client that wanted to get married in the Vatican by the Pope. Can't say any more about that one. I had clients who wanted to do something in the Pentagon. Can't mention any more about that. Uh, so, um, I've Real had- quick, before we forget this thought, Steve, as you think about what you're going to share, I did want to follow up with your comment um, around asking the right questions. Because in the book, you say something that's pretty fascinating, and a lot of us aren't willing to do it. And it was to follow up three times. So he'll say, hey, what's your dream? And they say, meet Journey. This is actually in the book. And then the-, the I've got an example. I'm, I'm not trying to cut it. I've got You're a great. story that's going to explain that one perfectly. Perfect. I just wanted to make All sure right. you did that because in real estate and well, any entrepreneurial venture, we ask one question and we forget, oh my gosh, the power is in the third or the fourth. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to give you my, my three experiences that I really liked, you've first of all got to understand the context that I am a bald black t-shirt wearing biker that drinks too much whiskey. That's as exciting as I, if anyone's out there going, my God, I want to hang around with Steve Sims. He's exciting. At the moment, this morning, I was Googling ficus trees. That's how exciting I am. I don't, I'm not exciting. I live vicariously through my clients. So I get into rooms that I would never have thought I'd ever be in. So to give you uh, two, two of them. I had a client that contacted me, wanted to have a dining experience in Florence. Keyword experience, not a meal, experience. And again, listen to the first bit. Never give a client what they ask for. Give them what they dream, desire, and lust for. And we're going to go into that in a second. But what I ended up doing, based on my original challenge, was I took over the Academia de Galleria Museum in Florence, which is the museum that houses Michelangelo's David, okay? The most famous statue in the planet. I took over the museum at three o'clock in the afternoon till two o'clock in the morning. I set up a table of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David. I had a string quartet. The client came in, had dinner from a top Tuscan chef. Halfway through, I said, I've got a local singer that would like to serenade you. Is that okay? They said, yes. And I escorted Andrea Bocelli in to serenade them during their pasta. That was me seeing how far I could go with an experience and, to be blunt, his checkbook, okay? So that was one thing. But there's another story that I don't even know is in the book. There was a client that I used to look after his anniversaries. I think I did it for like about nine years. And every year, it'd be a case of, hey, Steve, we've got our anniversary coming up. What's going to make me look good? We had flown them over to Paris for one night's meal and then flown them back. We had them sipping champagne on a mound of diamonds. We had done so many different things, each one of them more expensive than the other. This one he phoned up and he went, hey, it's my experience, uh, it's my anniversary. And I don't know if it was the 15th or the 20th, but it was one very major anniversary. I think it was the 20th. 
And he said, this one needs to be memorable. This one needs to be, keyword, impactful. Now, I ran through some questions. Again, we're going to explain how I do that in a second. I ran through some questions with the guy, and I found out that uh, I, the first time that he had met, he tried chatting her up at college, and she had basically just like kissed him away. No, we're not. No, I don't want anything to do with you. And what he did was one day found out where she was actually uh, doing one of her classes, laid out a picnic rug outside the, the entrance and exit of this uh, campus where she was at the time, set up a little wicker basket, had a boom box and had some champagne. And as she came out, he hit the boom box with some tunes, uncorked the champagne and went, care to join me? In basically a field of kids in college. So he he'd really looked stupid and she fell for the way he was willing to look that stupid for her. So when he said impactful and we heard this story, this woman had been, and they were very successful, very wealthy in Chicago. We had actually found out about this story. We went through old pictures that he had to find the picnic rug, the hamper, and the boom box that he had actually pushed the music on. We took over a local park and we set up a, a, a perfect reenactment of the first time he ever met her. And the one thing, and this will kind of make you laugh because we're slightly older, but you know, both of you look as though you're over 21, so you can remember this. Do you remember when the boom boxes used to have like the yellow, the green, and the red pin that used to go into them, and then they used to plug into the back of your of audio? Yep. How do you record anything onto a cassette player now? You know, those old Run DMC cassette decks, they've got different plugins now. Mm -hmm. So we bought this unit. We had no way of recording a cassette. So we had to send the cassette off to a friend of mine. I live in Hollywood, so we've got all of these people around us. Mm -hmm. And we gave him a playlist. Now, the daft thing is that sadly cost me more than the bloody boombox um, to get that done. This entire experience cost me less than $2,000. I have never, ever, ever invoiced anyone for any of my experiences or events for $2,000. I think $20,000 may have been my, my cheapest. So to do this for two grand, but we set up this picnic rug, we set up the hamper, we set up the boom box, we sat him on it, we put her in a limousine and sent her off. Now, years. She's been on private jets. She's been walking through stadiums for a private picnic in the middle of a stadium. She's done all of these hundreds of thousands of dollar things on her anniversary. She drove around, just drove around and drove until we were ready. We called the driver. Driver pulled up. She opened up the door of this limousine, stepped out. He pushed it. It was Alexander O'Neill was the tune that came on. He uncorked the, the champagne. He went, care to join me? Complete reenactment of the first time they ever met. She hit the deck like a sack of spuds. Just went down on her knees. The tears. And you can, I was around the tree watching all this. And she just lost it. I had a bit of a smirk on my face because the driver that was holding the door had no idea what he was supposed to do because he's now got this wailing woman in front of him. But he gently picked her up and the husband ran over and they came. 
he had paid or been able to tell us so much about the detail of that day and the fact that when you wanted an impactful moment, it was the music, the color of the rug, and that was the most impactful way he could celebrate her anniversary. When we, when he got her to the rug and we left, we hadn't seen her stop crying. And then years later, each year, I think the, the following year, we spent 250 grand on an anniversary. But when I went over to one of uh, a party and they were at the party and we all got chatting, only one story she told about all the anniversaries that she'd ever had. It was this one, how he had reenacted the first time they ever met. That's impressive. Yeah. Great story. Everyone that just listened now feels super humbled that they've never done that. So taking notes from Steve Sims. Simple That's cool. Stuff. I've never Simple heard someone stuff. do that before. Yeah, it was really cool. But you were asking about um, the asking why. Um, people today are embarrassed about giving you an answer that shows their vulnerability and worse, showing or exposing to you what's really important to them. We're embarrassed about it. We hold it back now. We don't want to be laughed at. We don't want to be judged. We don't want to be criticized. So I will give you a question that potentially makes me look maybe a bit more superior, a bit more thoughtful, a bit more articulate than what I am, okay? Not me, because, hey, it's me, but most people do. There was a realtor that I was working with, and she was, uh, she was a coaching client of mine, and we built her brand up, and we did all of this stuff. And she contacted me, and she said, I've had this client, and the client contacted me because she wants a three-bedroom house on this street. And I sent her every three-bedroom that was available on that street. I even went to houses, the one up for sale, to see if we could pocket list it to get that house for her. And she said no to every single one. He said, I'm running out of houses. She's running out of houses on that street to offer to the client. What am I doing wrong? And I said to her, well, it's, it's apparent and very obvious you didn't ask why. She said, what do you mean I didn't ask why? I said, well, what happened? Give me the enactment of the original conversation. She contacts you because she wanted something. She told you what? That she needed that street. She said, yeah, that street, three-bedroom house, you know, needs to have a pool. And you did what? And she said, well, I went and got it. I said, no. You gave the client, or you tried to give the client what they asked for. You didn't ask enough questions to understand what it was they needed or desired. You need to go back to that client and go, hey, I've done you a disservice. I've made a mistake. I've gone out and started action. I need to ask you, first off, why that street? Why is that important? Why three bedrooms? Ask why. And why is a very scary word. I'll have people contact me by DM on social, and they go, Steve, we should have a beer. And I will just respond with, why? <laughs> And it will upset people. I've had people threatening to hurt me. And I've had other people going, good question. This is why. Why is a very confrontational word that ignites different things into your brain cells. And so when she went back and she said, need to ask you, why that street? And then she says something else. And I said to her, keep pushing why. Ask why a minimum of three times. And she did it, and she did it again, and she did. 
And then the story came out. The call came out. That when she was a kid and they lived just outside of town, her mum used to put him in the car and drive through that street because that street was where all the successful people lived. That was the it street of that time. Now, let's be blunt. The it street, it moves, doesn't it? Over the years, the cool street of your location is no longer the cool street. Bear in mind, how many places do we used to live in our childhood that were like the rough end of town? Hell, is where all the trendy lofts are now. You know, so things change. Your address postcodes, they change on desirability. She was able to find out the reason for the move to that street was so that her mum would be proud that she had made it. Therefore, what she was looking for was not that street. She was looking for the it street. And that was in a different zip code. So you've got to ask why three times to find out what's, what's pushing that question. What is the core? You've actually got to be Sherlock Holmes. You've got to really delve in to understand what's motivating and pushing that question and that request. That's awesome. I love it. And so that's exactly it. And it's scary because you're almost questioning that the answer they gave you wasn't the truth. And in actuality, it probably wasn't. It's what they thought you wanted to hear. Yeah, you're qualifying it. And you're right, because I saw a lady once in uh, Glendale, which is a big shopping mall down near our, our town. And I'm walking with my wife and I'm going to apologize to any slightly large people now. So, you know, send me hate mail later um, or send it via these two. Um <laughs> But I'm walking down uh, the shopping mall and in front of me were these two guys. And in front of them was probably one of the largest women I'd ever seen in my life. She was a very, very large woman. But what was worse than this was that she'd been shopping at Target. Nothing against Target, but for some reason, she decided to have her arms three o'clock and nine o'clock pointing outwards with all the Target bags on it. I was actually super impressed with her upper body strength for holding on to these bags sideways. But what she was doing rudely was she was making it impossible for anyone to actually get past her. Now, as we were walking, that poor woman tripped. Now, because of the way her arms was, she actually went down on her chest and I swear hit the side of her face, the way it was so red. Now, the guys rushed to save her. I'm glad they didn't grab her because respectfully, she was too large. to. Once she was going, she was going, okay? So these guys may have got hurt. I ran in as well. So as I got there, there were the two guys that was now trying to kind of sit her up and me and my wife calling out for someone to come over like police or, you know, medic or something like that. The girl was very dazed, very, very red face, and all of her her target shopping all over the place. Now, she had been sat upright, her legs laid out. It wasn't elegant. Poor lady had just gone down badly. And I brought all of her shopping in and sat it between her legs to kind of stop anyone from thieving her shopping. As she started to come to, she suddenly started like, you know, looking around. She was like a prairie dog, looking all over the place. And I said to her, no, don't worry, don't worry. This is all your shopping. But, you know, are there any bags or purses or wallets or something that you had in your hand that I didn't notice? And she was like, no, everything's here. And still carried on looking left to right. And I said, well, what are you looking for? Is there there something missing? And she said, no, nothing's wrong. I just want to make sure no one was videoing it. Mm. Now, this poor woman 
then got stretched out to go and make sure she was okay. And the only thing that she cared about was not any bones that were broken, but was how many people were going to upload this to America's Funniest Videos and laugh at her. We're in a society today where we don't tell people what we want for fear of being judged, criticized, and laughed at. Remove that, and you'll be amazed at what you can actually conceive in a conversation. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. I agree. <laughs> I'm speechless. It just gives me chills. There's so many parts in the, of the book that are really intriguing to me. And it truly is all about your mindset. You know, and that's what I kept going back to when I was reading it. And you had mentioned, I think your mom uh, was, was looking at some shops just like this gal, maybe, you know, thinking that she wasn't deserving of shopping at those high-end stores too. So yeah, it, it really is all about your mindset. It's just so interesting. And, and you didn't let that ever stand in the way of anything that you wanted to do, Steve. So, I mean, that's a lot of the reason you are where you are. And it makes me think back to people like Ryan Serhant. I think he's probably the top agent in the world, top broker owner in the world. You know, he goes before this, this audition crew to get this role that he then, you know, that then made him famous and not having sold one property but he said, I'm going you know, to be the biggest, most badass agent. And you know, I'm the best, I'm the best there is, you know, and they believed him. So he got the role. It's just incredible. My wife often said that uh, my superpower is ignorance and that I've never <laughs> yes. overthought anything in my life. Yep. And I was searching to find out how that was a good thing in a relationship. But she actually <laughs> said that I'm so immune to the potential that anything I want cannot be achieved, that I don't even think of the, the alternative. So when I go into an event, when I go into an experience, when I go into a coaching, when I go into speaking on stage, my job is there to do X, Y, Z, and any alternative isn't even in my mindset. So, and it's amazing when you go in with that passion, that belief, you gain achievement. That's right. I think there's also a certain degree of people that you leave behind. And maybe you mentioned that as well. And I'm curious now that I mentioned your mom, I know I heard you speak on a podcast not too long ago uh, of the fact that you still have kind of a strained relationship with your mom as well, because you chose to leave and she wasn't really totally supportive of that. Yeah, there's a lot of people that hold you back, hold you down. Um, and you've got to decide, are you living for them or are you living for you? Um, and if you're lucky, it's a mate that you grew up from high school. Like how many times have you kind of, you know, someone said something about your mate because he's either belligerent, rude, whatever. And you go, well, he's a friend from high school, you know? Well, just because they've got older, if they were an arsehole then, then they're more of an arsehole now. But you've let them get away with it because you've known each other for so long. Um, well, sadly, one of those people that were holding me back um, by sadly their inability to look forward was my mum. And I had to make the decision, is this for me or is this for her? Um, and I got on with my father, but now me and my mum were never never tight. It, um, and it's sad, but you've got to make that decision of sure. what you're doing. Well, not to take that away from you, but I think that's for a lot of people. Uh, there was a book written, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And one of the regrets is living someone else's life. And I think a lot of us are influenced by our parents, our grandparents, our significant others, our family members that expect us to become a certain thing. Hopefully, is your mom still with us or has she passed? She's still with us, but won't talk to me. Really? Isn't yeah, that, it's, 
Yeah. It's kind of weird. She she still thinks I turned my back on the family business. The family business, which was you know, my dad and his brother, you know, duo bricklaying firm, she thinks I turned my back on that as a business as I'm traveling around the world doing what I'm doing. It's very strange. But hey, they always say you can't pick your family. That's right. I, I think that your mother loves you and probably has a lot of regrets about um, not embracing yeah. you, the man that you've now become. And as you shared the story, I was pretty choked up talking about this person who fell because so many of us, and I'll get choked up probably talking about it, have gone through something similar. We all are afraid to fail. Mm -hmm. Failure in the book, as you talk about, is simply self-discovery. And if you look at it as a failure as something you'll never do again and you don't learn from it, then it is a true failure. So unfortunately, up to this point, you leaving was a failure your mother has not learned from to recognize now the beautiful person you've become. But most importantly, the lives that you're now impacting and changing by putting a book like Blue Fishing Out or hosting the types of events you host, you're making other people better versions of themselves and they'll make other people better versions of themselves. And it will continually give forward. And had you kept yourself in the family business, building bu buildings, that's not a bad thing. You would have helped impact certain lives, but now you've touched the lives of millions. And for that, we're so grateful. And we're grateful for you coming on our show today. How can our audience members connect to your world? Um, I've got a free Facebook group called An Entrepreneur's Advantage with Steve Sims. Or you can just visit Steve D. Sims, S-I-M-S. -S. There's only one M in Sims and the middle initials D, D for dog stevedsims.com you can find out everything there and i'm on instagram and facebook under steve d sims i'm easier to get than covid so you know find me anywhere <laughs> <laughs> sounds great well steve you were a great guest today renee thank you for facilitating this and uh i'm excited to go to your event you've got a big event coming up i think you've mentioned it's pretty much sold out so for anyone listening now he's probably already sold out but we'll have future events and you can find all that information five spots, out. Five spots left but as of this uh, airing i'm sure there's none left sorry you guys there will be many more events, though. You'll definitely want to check that out. And then one last reminder for anyone considering an event this spring. We'd love to see you out at the Team Building Summit. It's in May 2021. We should have around 200 to 250 people in attendance, in real life, touching, facing, looking at each other. Finally, as we come off of COVID-19, as you mentioned, Steve. So thank you again. Uh, you've been an amazing guest. Appreciate everything you shared with us today. Great. Thanks, guys. Some impossible ask between now and July. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Have a good one.